Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to History Becomes Her, a mashable podcast about women making history right now and the women who paved the way for them. I'm your host, Rachel Thompson, senior reporter at Mashable. Ruth Hunt is one of Britain's leading LGBTQ campaigners and has played a central role in campaigning for same-sex marriage in England and Wales and access to fertility treatment for lesbians. After becoming chief executive of LGBTQ rights charity Stonewall in 2014, Hunt spearheaded the organisation's commitment to campaigning for trans equality. She is credited with transforming Stonewall from an LGB charity to a fully trans-inclusive LGBTQ charity during her tenure. Hunt left Stonewall in 2019, and that year she was made a crossbench peer in the House of Lords. My name is Ruth Hunt, and I am a director of a, a company called Deeds and Words, which I run with my, my partner, my life partner, and my business partner, and I am a crossbench peer in the House of Lords. So basically, we start off each episode by asking um, the same question, which is, um, is there a particular woman from history who's had a profound effect on your life or who's inspired you in some way? I think there are so many women scattered through through my life, I think, and have, have kind of come at different stages in, in my growth mm. that have had a profound impact. But I suppose the one I, I always revisit is Virginia Woolf to be frank. There are all those types of women in, in my life, but I think Virginia Woolf shows such um, core vulnerability in her work, also speaks such incredible truths about women and space and voices and the need for those things. Mm. And her own mental health charts a journey in her creativity that is everything from playful to profoundly existential and I can't help but continue to be moved by that really. I am obsessed with Virginia Woolf. I'm obsessed. I have a tattoo of, of one <laughs> really? of her quotes. I know that, that's, that's where I'm that. at. I love that. So yeah, speaking of kind of women from history, the, the achievements of LGBTQ people are notably absent from recorded history and I was wondering what your thoughts were on kind of how we can begin to address this. There's obviously a um, straight washing that goes on in history. Mm. And I, I know that throughout all my um, studies and things like that, any glimmers of queerness would always send a freeze on up, up my spine <laughs> and, and, and my colleagues as well. I think I think there are two things. The first is we've got to be really careful that we don't go back and queer up stuff that isn't quite queer. I think mm. we we can sometimes presume that people had identities that they may not have had um, and and kind of 
wish wish fulfillment on on some of the complexities but i do think that also it's about changing our lens a little bit on how we look at some of these stories mm. and even if we don't know for sure what the nature of that relationship was it, describing it in the terms that have not yet been described is really important and i think i think that goes for women as well i think we can look at, at lots and lots of major incidents in history and, and particularly i've been struck by the gchq celebrations of the last 100 years and how many women played a role in some of those key moments that you wouldn't have ordinarily heard about so the people writing the stories need to be a bit more imaginative but we also need to be careful that we don't make someone trans when they're not yeah, and absolutely. they're just living their lives. So I, I think I think there's there's a bit of wish fulfillment we need to be careful about. So during your time at Stonewall, what is the achievement that you're most proud of or that felt particularly special to you personally? When I worked at Stonewall for 14 years, so started in 2005 and finished in 2019. Mm. And during that time, I was a junior member of staff when some of the most significant legal changes happened that affected lesbian and gay people. And I think that, and I use those words deliberately, mm. lesbian and gay. Um, and I, I think that some of those uh, moments, of course, had a profound impact on society and the way they work. Same-sex marriage is is hugely powerful. But of course, I think it was the introduction of civil partnerships that was actually the most groundbreaking because that for the first time acknowledged that same-sex couples existed. But my personal um, pride rests in introducing and bringing properly into the fold trans people's experiences into that movement and shifting Stonewall from a movement that was was one that was primarily preoccupied with, I would argue, an assimilationist approach to gay rights, mm. to one that it was more ready to acknowledge the complexity of our movement and that we are not one community but many communities who interact and have different needs. And I think we always knew that would be controversial, that it would be difficult, that people would lose mm. by that. Yeah. Um, and I think we collectively thought, and the staff were profoundly um, clear about this, that that was a price worth paying. Which actually brings me to my next question, because you've said previously that Stonewall was in, late to the game in supporting the trans community. And when you joined, you faced some resistance when when attempting to address this lack of uh, trans inclusion. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about that time. When I first started, so I think from 2005 to 2008, mm. Press for Change were in a, a kind of equal position to Stonewall mm. in terms of legislative campaigning. And and I'm as a campaigner, I'm very much that that campaigns should be led by and for the people who it most represents. And I think that was a happy balance in 2005 to 2008. What mm. happened in 2008 is Stonewall got a lot bigger. Mm. Our reach got a lot deeper. Um, we were working with schools, we were working with employers. And I think that's the moment where we should have had a more adult conversation about trans inclusion. And I take responsibility for that. I didn't push that enough as a, as a member of staff. Mm. Um, and I think we, we comforted ourselves in the knowledge that trans people were were secure and, and able to lobby for themselves. I think what became abundantly clear from certainly 2010 onwards, when we had a coalition government, when it was clear that there was a um, the end of that era of left-wing majority, Labour left-leaning majority, what, yeah. for, for better or worse, I think we should have been more proactive in building alliances. Um, I think that had we campaigned for marriage and at the same time campaigned for Gender Recognition Act reform, that would have been an easier run. Mm. 
Um, so I, I, I've played my part in that. It, it, you know, I, I also have a responsibility that, that I didn't push hard enough for that. But when I became acting CEO and was interviewing for CEO, I was absolutely clear that the question had to be asked, how were trans communities best served by Stonewall? And that may have been through complete inclusion of trans agenda in our work, or it could have been us supporting trans communities to build their own movement. And, And that was the question on the table. But it had to be an explicit and active and positive move on our part. And I am immensely pleased that that trans people, the vast majority of trans people said, we want Stonewall to run with this. We don't want to just be the T at the end. Mm. We don't want you to have generic statements of LGBT when you're really talking about LNG. We want you to take our issues seriously. And we want you to create an opportunity for people who identify as trans to develop a career and a, a, a place of work and to be advocating and lobbying on their own behalf with the expertise and security of Stonewall around them. Mm. And that's what we set out to do. And it was messy. Yeah. <laughs> we made plenty of mistakes. And um, I've, I've not been at Stonewall for a few months now, but I'm sure the team would continue to say we keep making mistakes. <laughs> um, but the, the decision was absolutely the right one. And I'm incredibly proud of, of what we've done and how we're doing it. British feminism seems to be divided on the matter of trans rights. And there are, you know, so-called gender critical feminists who object to trans women occupying women's toilets, for instance. Um, How do you feel about this particular strand of British feminism? I think social media doesn't help anything. I think that I have had and Stonewall staff have had series of very good ongoing conversations, um, often in confidence and in mm. private to, to protect everybody really, about how we resolve some of what we would call the tricky issues about prisons, mm. about sport, about uh, access to particular services. And what's interesting about those conversations is that 90% of the ground is common. So in the the state of, uh, for example, domestic violence services, those who run those domestic violence services say that they've been supporting trans women for decades, mm. that they've never turned anyone away, that they would always find the most appropriate service for the individual, and that the politicizing of their services is very distressing, particularly when the big political issue for their services is the significant cuts to mm. their ability to run the services. In sport, the headline, the, the, the summary is often trans women attempting to get into sport. The reality is, is that trans women do not get an immediate right to participate in sport. The mechanism by which that is assessed is through a level of hormone levels, mm. and that is imperfect. So there's a discussion to be had about what is the best of message. Mm. In terms of prisons, I know trans men would not be safe in a men's prison. So we're, so there's always space for these conversations. The yeah. issue is, is that there is a significant amount of unhelpful hyperbole that often dehumanizes trans people that uh, I think often by accident, sometimes by design, misrepresents the factual reality of, of what is being proposed and what's being considered. 
And I am deeply concerned that a lot of the commentary comes from a place of unequivocal transphobia. Not all. And the, the positions that are not based in transphobia, that are good faith conversations, I have enjoyed many of those conversations, whether it's mm. over my dinner table or in, in meeting rooms. Those that are based on, on bad faith transphobia, I have less patience with. And that, that bad faith transphobia manifests itself by presuming that trans women are inherently, um, out to deceive mm. and that trans women are men and that uh, I that's something that doesn't really provide much space for discussion and negotiation about how best to manage prisons. And what do you think we can do to challenge the transphobia that seems to be, you know, certainly from what I've seen on social media, you know, it seems to be thriving in this country? Social media is deceptive. Mm. Um, so when I was at Stonewall, we did an exercise that mapped exactly where the opposition was coming from and the nature of that opposition. And I think, I think there are two sorts of opposition. There's that opposition that says trans women are men and we broke a no discussion. Mm. And, uh, I think that is a, a small but very vocal community mm. that has the ear of the media. And often what is said is accepted without challenge. And that's, that is a cause of grave concern. There is a middle group who would say trans women are trans women and we find it a bit puzzling. And that, that's the nature of campaigning. You know, that's, mm. that's, let's carry on. Let's talk. Let's meet. And I know that Stonewall, um, is, and others, organizations like Gendered Intelligence and Mermaids and All About Trans are doing brilliant work, just mm. slowly having these very, very good conversations and nudging the discourse along. There is a significant group of people, and I think the majority, who are appalled by the way in which trans people are being spoken about, are um, deeply concerned about what this signifies about a wider polarization of attitudes towards minority communities, that they see that transphobia is often a proxy for wider prejudice and discrimination, that the way in which trans people are spoken about is, is easily extended to people who are LGB, women who are non-traditional, non-conforming, all those kind of things. And people are also looking at where the money comes from for some of these campaigns. And I think people are very deeply concerned, both for their trans siblings and what this signifies about where we're at as a society. And I think it requires a huge amount of courage for people in that category to use their power to start saying, actually, not in my name. And that doesn't have to be done on Twitter because Twitter rarely achieves anything. Um, very rarely are people moved to change their mind. But stating unequivocally and clearly that they support trans people is is more important now than I think ever before. And the level of vitriol against trans people is, I think, the equivalent to the level of vitriol levied against gay men and HIV in the late 1980s. It is, it is similar in its pitch, its fever and its intention, which is to divide. And circling back to your work at Stonewall, the organisation was founded in the UK um, as a response to Section 28. Mm -hmm. And um, that's a law that passed in 1988 by Margaret Thatcher that stopped councils and schools promoting the teaching of the acceptability of homosexuality as a pretended family relationship. Um, how did this law affect students who went to school during during the time that this legislation was was in place? Well, it was, I mean, I was at primary school. So so that sells my age. I'm 39, <laughs> 40, 40 in March. And um, 
we the words lesbian, gay, bi, or trans, or anything like that was not mentioned at mm. all. And any books that positively depicted those things were removed from the shelves. Wow. So it was prompted by a book called Jenny Lives with Eric and Martin, which is a book about a young girl called Jenny who lives with her dad, Eric, and his boyfriend, Martin. And they do really boring kids things together. You know, they go to the shops, and they go to the park, and they go to school. And there's one scene in the middle of the book where Jenny is seen having, um, in Wales we call it a morning kutch, where you kind of snuggle down Mm. with with your parents and have a chat about your day. And the dads didn't have pyjama tops on. And this was considered to be so dangerous as the answer was to ban that book. And the issue was is that it caused a significant degree of confusion. And um, my partner, who's older than me, was, was at school at the time in sixth form. And she wanted to hold a debate on Section 28 and, and went, and she certainly wasn't out then, but mm. but knew she was different and went around and put posters up for this debate on Section 28. And the head teacher called her in and said that having the debate was in itself a breach of Section 28. Wow. So she had to go around the school and take the posters down. And that in the backdrop when you were seeing the Daily Mail arrive on your living room table every morning mm. saying HIV and gay men were killing people, I mean, that that has created a hostile, degrading and intimidating environment for us that mm. remains today. And I think it really struck us that um, young people who are leaving school now are the first generation to have come through without Section 28. It took a considerable long time to repeal Section 28 mm. and a considerably long time to then reverse its damage. And arguably, I don't think we have reversed its damage. The discussions that I had about primary schools and what can be taught in primary schools is the equivalent to the discussions that were being had around Section 28. And actually, that's my my next question. Um, in the headlines recently was a school in Birmingham that's had to install an exclusion zone to prevent protesters campaigning against LGBTQ equality messages being taught in school. So the protesters were chanting things like, let let kids be kids and wielded placards that read Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. How does it make you feel to to see that? Well, I, th- I think that certainly when I when I was at Stonewall and, and the staff at Stonewall would say we we knew that had never gone away. Mm. Um, I think what we are also aware of is that a lot of those protests aren't just about LGBT issues; they're about the general role of schools in in educating kids. But what's interesting is that those protesters have learned that the media report it when they talk about LGBT issues. Mm. So there is something there is still an underbelly that cannot be just attributed to those handful of protesters. There's something that people are concerned about their children learning about the fact that gay people exist. Yeah. And and I think that, that is, that's never been a way. So Stonewall uh, works with, there are you know 20,000 primary schools. They work with 2,000 a year, um, getting as quickly and deeply as possible into, and, and what we do, what Stonewall does is support the teachers to, mm. to have those conversations. Um, and I think that what's happened in Birmingham is a, is a sad indictment of, of some of the changes in how people feel about vocalising their opposition to minority communities. And it's because people are overworked and there's not enough resources for any of that building of communities there used to be. You know, the McPherson report under the Equality Act made clear that public bodies had a responsibility to build good relations mm. between communities. They can barely afford to keep social services on the round. 
yeah. right now. <laughs> you know, the, the luxury of spending time building good relations between communities is, is not happening. And that's what would be derided as um, political correctness or dismissed as namby-pamby, you know, whatever. It's, it's what builds good relationships. Mm. And good relationships are the foundations to good society. And good society is the foundations to well-being and happiness. So these are all fundamental traits of what keeps this world ticking that are mm. all being deprioritized. And, and that is incredibly dangerous. Yeah. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So um, two women on a bus were beaten up in a violent homophobic attack um, and their names were Melania Gaymanat and Chris Hannigan and they were subjected to homophobic abuse and coins were thrown at them after they refused to kiss. A lot of people were shocked um, and said, you know, it's 2019, how is this happening? But Hannigan later wrote an op-ed stating that, you know, she disagreed with this sentiment. Do you think a lot of people in society aren't aware of the kind of persistent threat posed by homophobia? Absolutely. And I, and I think, I think that there is a degree of, um, complacency about, about how far attitudes have shifted and a kind of ease with which people say, well, it's, it's an older generational objection and, and this will pass and change. That's mm. certainly not what Stonewall sees. And it's not what I experience as, as a, lesbian wandering around town um you know london is no more immune to this as as dorset is and mm. um i think that what what the two women explained was a real um insight into the 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 low level of persistent anxiety that exists if you are queer mm. if you are lgbt because what you are constantly doing is risk assessing and assessing whether a situation is is safe or not and whether that situation has changed. And there's a reason why I cycle everywhere in my sometimes my three-piece suits, <laughs> my tweeds tucked into my <laughs> loke boots. You know, it is infinitely safer to yeah. be on a bike as a dike, frankly, um, and, and get around quickly. And, and I think that... Uh, 
my partner and I often talk, you know, we, we don't even have to communicate when we're out, mm. when we know that suddenly something doesn't feel safe and we'll let go of each other's hands and we'll move away. I think also there has always been low-level um, homophobic abuse, biphobic abuse, mm. and certainly significant transphobic abuse that is that is much more surface now. And I think that uh, LGBT people are getting less um, patient with that. They, mm. they are being less almost um, accepting of it. And I think that social media has served as a good for that because you can immediately let people know mm. what, on your followers list that this has happened to you. And I am really grateful that those two women pursued their case and they took it so seriously because we need more of that. But but it wasn't new at Stonewall. Yeah. It didn't feel new to us. It just felt that people were listening in a different way. But I also know that if it had been a trans person, it would not have received the publicity, as as the op-ed stated, yeah. that the fact that they were two white women who were feminine mm. meant that they received greater outrage than they would have done if they were a person of colour or if they were trans or if they looked like me. Mm. And I think that's, you know, we are we are in danger of perpetuating the inequalities by talking about what's good gay and bad gay and which which good gays deserve not to be not to be mm. beaten up and which bad gays had it coming because they were a bit too gay is still, I think, a common discourse. And that story in particular also raised the issue of the, the misogyny and homophobia experienced by the lesbian community, which can take the form of uh, sexualized comments and abuse. And I'd love to know your thoughts on how we as a society can work to address this particular strain of homophobia and misogyny. Well, I, th I think it is. I think it's through compulsory sex and relationship education in schools. I mean, mm. and I think that starts in primary schools with good conversations about how boys treat girls and what and what good behaviour looks like, and how we respect women. And, and that isn't about shouting at Alexa, mm. um, which kids learn to do at eight and nine, and learn how to be derogatory. And it's not helped through accessing pornographic images from a young age on unfiltered sites and learning everything about sex mm. through that medium. I mean, it's one thing that Stonewall and the Church of England were utterly aligned on, that, that young people learning about sex and relationships through pornography is deeply unhealthy. Mm. And the lesbian, lesbian porn is designed to demean, diminish and to deride mm. and if men are only learning about lesbian identities through pornography then that fuels the misogyny that that relates to homophobia so the answer is to start talking to men much more talking to boys much more about respect and what sex looks like mm. but also talking to women about about what's what's their own pleasure. I find it extraordinary in this day and age, and I certainly probably wouldn't say this if I was still in Stonewall, but but as I now am my own woman, <laughs> um, that we don't talk to girls about their own pleasure and what they need and what they want and, and what they can say yes to and what they can say no to and, mm. and and how and how that's as much part of education as what sex isn't. You know, how we can have a healthy relationship with sex is I think incredibly important. And then the the, the kind of the way in which lesbians become either a figure of derision or a fantasy mm. will hopefully decrease. Yeah. So you're now the uh, director of Deeds and Words. Um, can you tell me a bit about what your current work focuses on? So me and my partner, we, we run a, a lovely little consultancy business where we help organisations who are really struggling to um, achieve an optimum inclusive workplace. Mm. So So they may have had some problems, they may have had specific issues, but are struggling to kind of help their workforce 
um, have good quality conversations and work in a way that enables everybody to contribute to their best of their ability. Mm-hmm. And we work with a range of different clients, We're just in the middle of some brilliant work with Liberty, the Civil Civil Liberties Organization, helping them. Re- and, and what they came to us and said is if we are advocating to ensure that young black men aren't stopped and searched and that's an abuse of human rights, we cannot do that as a group of white people. Mm. You know, so how are we going to, and that can't be clicked. So that's something about how we work, who we work with, how we operate. And that work is quite subtle and, and in depth. We run a creative young leaders program for the Roundhouse, uh, which is an arts venue up in North London. So we have some lovely clients mm. like that. And we do quite a lot with government. Um, cool. so we're quite, we're quite deeply involved with lots of government departments. And I think what, what government departments are increasingly realizing is that if you do not create an environment where different perspectives can be heard, you make very poor decisions. And now I'm in the House of Lords. Tell me about that. (laughs) What the hell is that like? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. It's quite random. It's not what I was expecting. Yeah. So I was expecting to finish off in Stonewall and slightly kind of retreat into Mm. a a different space for a while. Um, And uh, yeah, I feel very young. I feel very gay. I feel a little out of my depth, but I also feel like it's the most important place I can be right now. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Thanks very much. (laughs) It's a bit Um, scary. Thank you so much for for coming on the podcast and talking to us. Thank you very much for having me. If you liked this episode of History Becomes Her, please subscribe, rate and review. If you have suggestions of history-making women we should feature on our podcast, or you simply want to get in touch, find us on Twitter at HBHpod. And you can find me on Twitter at RVT9. History Becomes Her is a mashable podcast created by Rachel Thompson and Maria Demenzi. Our artwork is by Vicky Lita. Our music was produced by Christiane Straker. Special thanks to Shannon Canellan and Nikolai Nikolov. And why not check out our sister podcast, Fiction Predictions? Thank you so much for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.